0: Stephen Cohn is a talented, tenacious, intelligent young independent writer-director who's constantly evolving, constantly juggling the demands of his last film, his current film, his future films, constantly getting it done, getting things made, and always somehow remaining vigilantly true to his artistic vision. And these are just a few of the reasons that I hate him. Actually, I don't hate him. I can't hate him. Because, God damn it, on top of all this, he's also extremely likable. But I do envy him, and not because he's had anything handed to him. I envy his ability to do all of the above. It may be easier than ever to make a movie, but easier than ever is still pretty goddamned hard, especially if you want to make a good one. From the writing, to the financing, to the prepping, to the shooting, to the editing, to the festival campaign, to securing distribution, to I get exhausted just talking about it. But Steven is out there all the time, finishing one project, starting another, And no small efforts, all ambitious and deeply personal. Films like The Wise Kids, Black Box, and his latest film, Henry Gamble's Birthday. Coming-of-age stories, in large part, that often explore a theme of sexual identity. But I hate to pigeonhole him. The films confound expectations. And like the filmmaker himself, his work has integrity. His work is all heart. How the hell do you do it, I ask him near the end of our conversation. It's a stupid question. How does he do it? He doesn't take no for an answer he wouldn't even know how also on today's show yes we are all freaked out by the rash of celebrity deaths so far in 2016 enter the hog butcher radio players to perform a piece that laughs in the face of our apparent mortality and on the way out a song by the rapturously enchanting robin bienneman i'm ron lazaretti and this is the hog butcher radio hour I got the coffee I got the donut yeah you're good um you know I'm actually somewhat uh I'm one of these characters that's parading around gluten-free oh yeah is that but gluten-free that's not gluten-free oh. that's so what's a, gonna happen that's a Dinkles um sour cream what's going donut um you know I'll just sort of maybe get a little bloated later <laughs> <laughs> I do make an every time I pass Dinkles I make an exception
1: okay how often do you pass it
0: not often oh. <laughs> Um, you know, let's just let's just start um let's start in a broad sense. Mm-hmm. Like what's it like to be an independent filmmaker right now? In Chicago? On the on the planet? On the in planet, a, but yeah, yeah, let's start on the planet.
1: Uh it's it's uh it's very very challenging because these you know, these amazing cameras are so inexpensive. And so everyone's making movies now, you know? So there's, uh, that's why you see these, <clears throat> if you look at festival programs year by year, they go up like, you know, the submissions go up five, 10% every year is just because everyone's buying a, I mean, even little camcorders, people, you know, our phone, everything looks amazing. So everyone can make an amazing looking movie. It doesn't mean they're making amazing movies. It just means they're superficially sort of attractive, you know? Right. So, um, yeah, it's you know, but this is no different than like you know when the printing press was invented, you know, like right? People didn't you know the 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 um, the oversaturation of paper or ideas and writing and books and printing didn't necessarily kill books. So it's just uh, it's an interesting challenge because what it, what it means is that the more vo- the more movies are made, uh, the more. Uh, sort of in transition and in flux the ideas about distribution and and uh, just getting your thing out there you know um, well it
0: also seems like there are there are greater opportunities to make things mm-hmm. in a sense there are greater opportunities to place things mm-hmm. um, just because there's a lot of different channels to go through it seems like perhaps harder to even when you do break through, still it's still harder to get a return. Yeah. You know, right?
1: Well, there's this, there's, there's the, all these ideas about there, out there about uh, you know a filmmakers as much a um, you know a business person as an artist, and a filmmaker is as responsible for his for the follow through as he was the original product. And that's smart in theory, but that's not necessarily the sensibility or the strength of the the best artists. You know, so often what you have are less talented people who are better at the pushing it and the marketing and the business side and then there's some people who just want to make good stuff and don't have a business side you know so it's it's a a little it's a little tough and and it's not as easy as saying you have to get your movie out there especially since we're still in this sort of antiquated system of you know really the only route wow I'm really jumping here but you know really the only route for independent filmmakers now is is um, is festivals in terms of just like getting press wide play stuff like that so you know in in that sense i always i say this all the time music is so far ahead of film in terms of just distribution and and by that i mean if a man if a band puts an album online you don't assume it's shitty
0: <laughs> right
1: you know but if a filmmaker just puts a movie online you assume it just failed elsewhere and ended up online so music has this wide sort of sharing quality now I'm just going to put our music out there. I'm going to go record a quick EP and then release it, or I'm just going to throw a music video online. And these things really take off. And good artists are doing that, but there's not really.
0: Well, you also get a little bit. I mean, right now, that their work, a musician's work, isn't necessarily the commodity anymore that they're that they're living off of or selling. It seems to me most records that particularly young independent bands put out. Those are there to make them known, so that you'll go see them. Right. Nobody seems to be making money making records anymore, but you can't make a film so that somebody can then pay you to do something else. You know what I mean? Right.
1: Yeah. And exposure doesn't equal money. Right. But I I just think there's a stigma against sharing film work openly and publicly. Sure. That's that doesn't
0: apply to music. It, It seems like the democratization of film is like that's it's the good news prop good news bad news proposition really because it is the it is easier and greater for everybody but that glut really does make it hard to bust through what do you, what do you do you think about that do you think about as opposed to just i want to make this story do you think what about this story is going to make it hmm. make a noise i mean no i, I mean i don't have that
1: uh, I don't have a strategic bone in my body.
0: Like I always felt like Spike Lee was a guy who was thinking, "This will get people talking, whatever it may be." Which, and I love a lot of Spike Lee films, but I always thought he was very conscious and savvy about do about doing things that would get attention.
1: Hmm. Uh, yeah, maybe so. I do wonder about those. I mean, something else I've found myself saying occasionally is that you know i don't know i i do so on the flip side of that i do wonder how all those 80s guys would do now you know jarmusch gus Vincent right spike lee those movies weren't i mean i understand what you're saying about spike lee but on the whole those aren't those weren't those weren't sort of like just blasting out of the gate films necessarily they were just sort of plotless mood pieces about people and i want you know i often wonder i was like what would happen if someone submitted a uh Malanoche or a, a down by law or, a, or, sure. a, uh, or even a she's got to have it, you know, to, to, because what is the, there's no gimmicks in them. It's right. Sort of like just pieces about, about well, I remember Jarmusch you
0: know? saying something about, I'd rather make a movie about a guy walking a dog, you know, yes. than, uh, 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 that was kind of.
1: Yeah. So I wonder how they would fare now sometimes I think about things like that.
0: Well, I do think it's harder for those kinds of voices to come through now. Right. Well, uh, and
1: and sort of Boyhood sort of snuck, th- snuck through. Uh, boyhood is, seems to me the most sort of successful, sort of plotless thing to come around in a while. And But, of course, it has the quote-unquote gimmick attached. And right. But later I, and
0: that, I think the interesting thing about that movie to me, uh, because when you think about it, you know, Birdman had a little bit of a gimmick, and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these... But I, I didn't really find the gimmick of Boyhood ultimately to be gimmicky, you know? It no, was like, me either. And in that sense, in again, fact, I, I thought of you uh, seeing that film. I mean, I, I don't think you're like Linklater or anything like that. But I just in terms of the story that was told and the manner in which it was told, it put me in mind of you. Um, I, you know,
1: well, I appreciate that. And Linklater is a hero of mine. I, in fact, I think it's, um, in some ways, I'm sorry it took this film after 30 years of really amazing work to for sure. people to be talking about him in any notable way, you know, because right. he's, his strength and what's sort of amazing about him is how he's blended in. And, and uh, so, you know, if you, you crank out um, ta- these experimental things like Tape and Waking Life and then Fast Food Nation and Scanner Darkly, like a- as independent pieces, you may, you may feel positively or negatively about them. But the fact that, that this American auteur sort of is churning out these wildly disparate pieces is kind of amazing and it's more impressive to me than someone who sort of like stakes their claim on a consistent style does that make sense yeah so he's it, sort of a hero in that way he yeah, just does his thing that. he does that he does what he wants but i don't think boy if boyhood didn't have the 12 year thing or if it wasn't made by linklater i don't i don't think i don't wonder what if well, it would play anywhere
0: and he seems, you know one of the great things about him is I appreciate kind of that a lot of his work is a reflection on time. You know, when you think of the Before Sunrise and those films as well, mm-hmm. you know, he's, it wasn't just he thought, let's do this crazy experiment where we do it over to, it's like he's obviously, that's playing in his oh, yeah. head, you know. He's that, so engaged. And, and And that particular theme is something that he returns to. Do you find in your work that you consciously or unconsciously return to similar themes or (laughs) um yeah
1: i mean i didn't really um you know if you'd if you'd asked me uh 10 years ago 15 years ago if if i would if i thought i was going to be making a series of films about you know even coming of age wasn't even a particular interest of mine right you know but you just end up making the things you make so yeah I, i keep returning to these these uh Things of coming of age and sexuality and identity and religion, and just yeah, I mean, it's there. uh, But you, I feel like filmmakers, well, who was it said? Jean Renoir said, we're everyone, no, Altman said, we're every filmmaker is just remaking the same movie over and over again, right? Um, and I'm okay with that, I think, but um, and it's funny, even now, again, I'm jumping all over the place, but even now, I've been joking recently about. I seem to be already remaking my own movies, <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm even sort of cracked the the cracked the whole deal yet. It's just it's funny that, um, and I think a lot of that is because during my self education, because like I made a bunch of movies, I didn't do that well um, before the Wise Kids even, and uh, but so a lot of it was uh, it was sort of over ambitious and trying to get at things I wasn't quite ready for and so i guess it doesn't surprise me to be sort of going back and saying what is this version of that or what is something i want to hone in on there you know
0: tell tell just for those who don't know could you just briefly tell what the story of wise kids or what that film's mm-hmm. about
1: yeah it's three it, it's more or less three teenagers in the bible belt dealing with some certain uh uh types of identity whether it be sexual or spiritual or um so three three uh Three kids in the Bible Belt around 17, 18 years old prepping to go to college um, in Charleston, South Carolina, um, and then a um, couple side characters going through similar things kind of a decade later, and and
0: yeah, so. Well, and, and given that subject matter, I'm thinking of a, of a movie, I think it was called Saved, mm. Macaulay Culkin and mm. a couple other mm-hmm. people. Um and and my impression of films like that where religion is depicted as especially depicted side by side with something like homosexuality or something that would be controversial to that world mm-hmm. um that the religious side in particular is painted in in broader strokes mm-hmm. and oftentimes you know not not flattering and and perhaps understandably so wise kids was a movie that Surprised me with how much it with how much compassion and dimension it treated everybody in in the equation. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, in no way did the religious. It just felt like everybody was struggling with something, mm-hmm. and there and that there was dimensions to, there was dimension to everyone. I mean, can you talk about that?
1: Um, you know, a lot of it is just uh, growing up in that. Milieu. So my dad was a Southern Baptist minister. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up, uh, it was a very rich, um, complicated world to grow up in. And it was no less, I mean, it's so silly to refer to real life as three dimensional, <laughs> but it was no less three dimensional than any other milieu that someone might grow up in. And, and, uh, sort of evangelical america is such a such a vast segment of the population that it it's so reductive to think of it in any in any other terms than large complex human community you know so and that's that's the that's the unfortunate thing is that oftentimes communities any com- any community in this day and age especially in, with the 24-hour news cycle and everything you sort of start to think of large segments of the population uh, in terms of their categories and their vastness and their masses. and But, I mean, you walk into a, a room with a 100 evangelical Christians and every single person is going to have a different point of view in life and experience and different experience. So, I mean, it shouldn't be surprising to people that American Christians
0: are as complicated as anyone else. What was your experience with other Christians during that period when you were growing up. In the three films that I'm referencing, um, it seems to me that there's sort of not so much a a character goes through some sort of epiphany. And it doesn't always seem strike me as a sexual awakening as it almost does like a sexual reckoning, like Hmm. something that they are already aware of but are now letting come forward. What was your experience in terms of your own sexual identity mm. and how that kind of played out in yeah. that
1: world. Um, I mean, yeah, there's stuff. I mean, like as like a, like a queer Southern person, um, I was, uh, it, it certainly come from that vantage point. I have to say though, like a lot of it was, because I've always been sort of an independent spirit. So I wasn't, there wasn't anything that I didn't have access to or any kind of relationships that I wanted that I, that I personally couldn't, didn't right? Because I wasn't a. I didn't date in high school, nor did I really want to. I I didn't date in college even. So yes, it is from my own. It's but but it's almost it's almost like these are made more through my filter than from my own personal experience. Yes, right. I get it. So a lot of it is just stepping away from that life or getting distance five ten years later, and and realizing the people who were trapped who were older than me then, and also realizing the differences in terms of what's embraced, not embraced, now versus then. So a lot of it is just like a generational study for me, and a lot of it is just remembering. I mean, some of the most powerful, impactful people that I met are, just, are not even, I'm not saying in the influential way, uh, inspiring way, <laughs> in sort of the flip of that, um, were sort of single, middle-aged men, camp counselors, ministers of music, men who were not partnered or married, who had a different quality about them, who loved the arts. You know, uh, in the moment I felt like this is all, these people only have their church, you know. And um, a sense of loneliness, something going on there. You know, And I don't mean to say that they were all gay and closeted. Most of them probably were. <laughs> um, but a lot of it was observation. A lot of these the stuff in these movies come from much more from observation than my own personal experience. And I would say that's especially true about Wise Kids and that Henry Gamble maybe dabbles a little more into my own direct experience, even though I didn't have a pool or a
0: nice or fancy house. Nice. Well, you play a character in Wise Kids, which Mm -hmm. I'd like to double back and ask you about acting as well, but uh, it's a really, there's a point in Wise Kids towards the end, I hope it's okay to talk about that now, and I don't know that it's a spoiler anyways, but your character who obviously, who has sort of come to terms with the fact that well, I don't know if he's come to terms, but he's there's an awareness and a desire to kind of express the fact that he's homosexual. And um, he it gets as far as really just saying it, I, I would say is probably, which, which is very difficult for him to say in a scene, which is a really amazing scene in terms of the way it takes its time. Hmm. Um, but there's another scene that follows where we don't really get a sense that he's, Acting upon this any further and there's a Christmas pageant and he's there and he's standing there and he's looking at his wife who's dressed like an angel and he's looking at a young man who he's had feelings for and who he expressed himself to in in a way that he hasn't with anyone else and he seems to be trying to piece it all together and then there's an older member of the church who's standing next to him and you and he's very kind of effusive in his praise to your character, and and you're both standing there, and you look at him. It's 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 one of those moments where there's not a whole lot said, there's not not a whole lot spelled out. Um, but again, it's I I, I think I, I keep going back to this idea of a sexual reckoning. Like you almost look at this character, your character almost looks at this character like something that he's known all along becomes obvious to him in some way. <laughs> hmm. um, and, you know, I'm kind of always intrigued by that, especially as it applies to se- sexuality. I mean, in American culture, I think about things... I mean, for years and years, you had flamboyant characters like Liberace mm-hmm. and Paul Lind or mm-hmm. whatever, and no one ever spoke about their sexuality. And they were wildly popular, and it was sort of suggested that they weren't gay they were just funny you know (laughs) right it's something
1: almost alien about them yes right they were visiting from another place
0: did you ever recognize that when you were a kid like there would be these characters that you know that you had something some connection to but but they were you know what i'm saying it's
1: like i do i had that feeling though more about real life i had a i had a a flamboyantly gay best friend in second grade (laughs) and and to me that was that that right. was i something's different here um and but i so for that reason you know and this was like a musical love i mean this guy had like a little chapel like an audrey II bank you know and <laughs> and we we did um you know there was one saturday we did like auditions for cats in his garage or something
0: I think one person For, for can, cats, for
1: cats, yeah, <laughs> That's yeah, yeah, fantastic. and and uh, but he'd even like built out a green room with, uh, you know, magazines and stuff. I mean, this is a seven, eight year old kid. Uh, so I, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any distinct memories of watching television and thinking this person seems different. But I, you know, definitely in life, uh, whether it be, you know, other kids or like I said, church people. But i you know, that's that that scene that you mentioned in the Wise Kids is, you know, it's um, it's it's really significant because there is a, you know, segment of, us even a sub segment of that evangelical population that are thirty to forty five year old middle aged people who are sort of caught between generations, and and that's why. You know, it's tricky. A lot of them, you know, I've I know people who've separated from their families because now they're like, "Oh, I am allowed to be this way now." You know, I wasn't in the 90s, but now maybe we're moving in a different direction. So, you know, my character in the Wise Kids is sort of trapped between sure. 1995 and 2025, you know, and in that sense.
0: Well, it seems like you're making films at sort of a at a pivotal time, which in some ways is interesting because I I wonder given what feels like a real movement in terms of the attitudes of people towards homosexuality or any of that kind of, you know, you wonder at some point, will that affect the movies that you're making in in the sense that that's no longer as big a deal?
1: I mean, yeah, I don't want to make, I hope I'm not making um, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. (laughs) <laughs> right. You know i mean right. I, I i do think about that, um but you know, I guess I just hope there's a human quality there that that uh that sustains them, yeah just like you know sure eighteenth century novels or whatever oh or i whatever. don't
0: i I'm not speaking so much from the standpoint of how it will date what you've done, oh, okay. so much as it will affect what you do moving forward, oh, yeah, do you know
1: what I mean oh, yeah, 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 I mean i right now. You know, I have one one thing I'm writing that's in this vein-ish. Um, and, and, again, it's just a strange thing. I keep, like, this thing I'm writing now is sort of like Henry Gamble goes to college a little bit. I didn't mean to do that. I don't, I'm not trying, I'm not, like, strategically doing that. It's only, like, I get halfway through a script. And I'm like, oh, I'm, like, following the, or, like, even going from Wise Kids to Black Box. I literally went from high school to college and went back to high school for... Henry Gamble, but then there's more about the adults there, too. So in some sense, I was going forward and dabbling in college.
0: Um, It was funny, because in some ways, I found in Henry Gamble, and this is sort of what interests me. you You talked about societal change. But in some ways, it felt like some of the attitudes in Henry Gamble were... I felt like there was more intolerance in Henry Gamble than there was in Wise Kids, sort of. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Does that... Um, it seemed like most of the characters in Wise Kids on some level were always dealing from a place of affection and maybe even some a sense of enlightenment that was in them that they were trying to bring into play in a world where you know they just were still wrestling with things. Henry Gamble, I felt like there were a handful of characters, maybe just one or two, who represented a little bit more kind of a, just a very pure intolerance Mm -hmm. did you feel like you were exploring more of that stuff in that Mm -hmm. movie yeah I mean even
1: before I made it I said I want this to be a little more of a I mean I hope it's equally compassionate but I yeah it was it was um or not compassionate but equally um we still even the intolerant people you still feel like they're stuck in a system or whatever um yeah I wanted it to be a little more of an indictment I think you know there's something about the wise kids uh, I'm not saying this is a criticism or anything else, but um, there's something a little bit idealized about it, um, and I know that if you actually live in that life, you're gonna feel a lot of hypocrisy and pain and uh, judgment. Um, and I and so, in some ways, maybe Henry Gamble is even a very in a very small way, kind of a corrective, a little bit, um, and but not not in an improvement. But a corrective to the balance between yeah. love and judgment. Because that... in so in some sense, Henry Gamble is probably closer to reality than... Because um, I had someone... I screened Wise Kids once, and a guy asked me why I Disney-fied that culture. And, uh, you know, but for both of those movies, you know... And I imagine people will still even see... Well, no, maybe not, but... If you, don't look, if you don't look at these movies closely, there is a kind of a just a lyrical, lovely surface, you know? And if you don't, you gotta look close to see the pain, just like you have to look close in the community to see the pain. Because no one is sad and lonely and heartbroken and, and in despair in the evangelical church is showing this in public. So, in both cases, in the films and in uh, the real communities, if you're not really listening, you're not going to really get it. And in some ways, that's where movies like Save to Go Wrong. It's almost like a circus where all this hypocrisy and, and backstabbing and judgment is just happening out in the opening like a three-ring circus. It's not how it works. The surface is very warm, you know? So in both cases, you know, but even Wise Kids, however idealized it might be on the surface... You know, my character's very much hurting, and and it's a result of you know a lot of a lot of uh, oh I just had a thought a lot of um, hidden secret judgment. But something that now occurs to me that we're talking about this is maybe one difference between the two is that um, beyond uh, Austin Elizabeth, um, adults are largely absent from the front from the sort of main wise kids track you know Mm -hmm. the parents the parents are small characters so wouldn't it make sense that in henry gamble when the adults are brought in to equal play that we would sense more of that generational judgment Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's sort of i think it just follows that this would be when you bring the adults into the picture you're going to have you, you know, because the kids are in a purer place. So their story is going to be purer, you know? And for the most part, we think, you know, maybe we're already talking too much about Henry Gamble, but, you know, for the most part, the kids, even the Christian kids in Henry Gamble, are a little, con- they're not quite sure what they think about that stuff. There's really just one mm-hmm. teenager who's very sort of overtly judgmental. Right. So it would make. There's
0: one who actually challenges.
1: Right. And he's a Christian kid. It's not, like right. he's the, it's not like the atheist is challenging the, you know. Right. Um, so the church is in flux, and these movies hopefully indicate that. But I think one of the reasons Henry Gamble's more of an Indictment is because I brought the adults back. <laughs>
0: right. Right. Well, that would make sense, because the point of view of a previous generation on this is, you know, is not just conflicted. There's a little bit more judgment going on. Right. Right. Judgment from nice people. To, right. You know? Do you still are you? Do you practice? Are you are you religious in any fashion? No, or?
1: No, I, no. I mean, I I still appreciate the community. I go to church with my, you know, when I go home, I go with my parents. I like the community, um, you know. Uh, I'm also not a hardcore, staunch atheist. I'm I'm uh, you know I'm interested in the bigness that is the whole deal, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You know, so. Uh,
0: The the whole you know, on one hand it's you're a vo you have a voice that is distinctive. You're this these are stories that haven't been told a lot up until now, and in some ways it's great that you tell them so well. Um do you ever get into the into a mode of thinking A I'm getting branded as a gay filmmaker as opposed to a filmmaker or the films are gay films as opposed to being films. Do you does that ever pose any problems for you?
1: No. It it doesn't because I mean, well, The Wise Kids is its own interesting case because we premiered at Outfest in Los Angeles, which I always call the Gay Sundance because it's <laughs> it's uh And they, in fact, they share staff. They share programmers. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a big deal, big organization. I mean, we premiered in DGA Auditorium 1 to like 700 people. Um, But I did not anticipate premiering at a gay film festival, that film, because it's only sort of, you know, 60% gay, maybe. (laughs) Um, uh, That branded that movie. And that was a concern for about five minutes, but, you know, and well, and that was partially because I knew that urban gay people would appreciate it, but they're also the people who don't who already know that story. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, you know, where you premiere sort of brands you, but as a filmmaker, no, I mean, Black Box didn't get into any of the gay festivals. (laughs) it wasn't gay enough. So, um so no, I'm not. I'm not. And then Henry Gamble it seems like it's going to launch um sooner than Outfest um at another in another place. So, um
0: I think it was in a yeah, a Michael Phillips piece. Or maybe, I'm not sure if this was from that piece, but at some point you were talking about the fact that wise kids lent you some indie legitimacy and you said the thing you want and don't want at the same time, you know, yeah. indie. What's, I know, I guess, what the upside of legitimacy is. What's the downside? I think what I meant by that is, oh, it's kind of
1: esoteric and not even entirely. Um, uh, I don't know that I 100% stand by that, but... but um I think what it means is that in from my eyes at least from someone um, who's actually a a cinephile who loves movies for the you know everything that's been made for the past hundred plus years I I, it feeds me and I love it and 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 I think what I meant by that is that like is indie film at its worst right now has become its own genre with its own look its own sort of um, sort of Uh, Passive, inexpressive Mm -hmm. solipsistic uh, inward looking just sort of gloomy apathetic (laughs) thing Um, so it's almost like being invited It's, it's yeah I think that's what I meant by that on the other hand that's kind of looking at American independent film a bit too narrowly too because and in some ways it's um, falling into the same narrow sort of perception of what it is. And in fact, there are festivals and people and programmers and critics who are championing expressive, legitimate, wonderful American movies. Um, but I think, I think what I meant by that is American independent film is very clicky, and uh, is a downside to being a part of any clique. Any Hollywood yearning? Um, no, no, I mean, I I don't, I mean, I have to, I have to admit to it. I always say this, I hesitate to say this, but I, I love the geography out there. I mean, I'm a big lover of, of the West coast and of California and of the desert. And I like the, all the, all the, all the stuff that people find lonely and depressing about Los Angeles, I like and kind of soothes me in a romantic sort of way (laughs) Um, so I'm very drawn to the landscape there. And I, and I have to also admit that, um, Chicago, the strengths far outweigh the, the downsides. I mean, the, the Chicago is the ultimate place for freedom and creation. That's why I'm here. But I've never had sort of the blue collar Midwestern thing in my blood. I mean, it's just not, I come from the South. I don't, I'm a suburban boy from the South. This is sort of rugged work thing here that. Spiritually, I've never quite gelled with, <laughs> even though I guess I am practicing it in some ways. But um, I, I'm, what I'm talking about is very abstract. It's just the mood of a place, mm-hmm. and I'm never quite f- uh, the Midwestern mood. I haven't. I'm still figuring out. Um, but
0: um, are there careers that you admire? You look at and go, you know. I wanted to ask you who you know sort of the stock question of who's influenced you but I'm sort of even more curious in terms of who's out there that you think yeah that's moving forward that that guy's career looks pretty
1: good to me yeah well the irony of that question is that a lot of those people are also really struggling financially still (laughs) (laughs) you know I mean like um Mm -hmm. like you know we mentioned Jim Jarmusch you know I don't think he—he's not a wealthy man. I don't think you know, and that's because he has just stubbornly maintained his, his work ethic and his aesthetic. Um, It's great that you—I love that you brought that up because there is a distinct difference between um, films that inspire you and filmmakers that inspire you. Because there, there are, you know, there are people that inspire me for, uh, for whom I don't necessarily love all their films. It's like Francis Ford Coppola and Herzog, Jarmouche. those are three people. I'm not in love with their films, but their independent spirit, I constantly just pulling from. Um, and bef- before I move on, I, I sort of self-censored myself when you asked me the original question. My stock answers for who careers I admire are, are Soderbergh, Vincent, and um, Linklater. I mean, they're they're just three people who've always done exactly what they wanted to do, similarly, and and mm-hmm. have kind of because Vincent lives in Portland and Linklater lives in Austin and they just like do their thing. And they dabble a little bit in Hollywood, and, but it's more there's more integrity to their one for them one for me than there is in other instances. Um uh yeah, I you know the the struggle I have though and the reason, well we could do a whole conversation about the reasons that I think it's taken me um 11 years to even begin to sort of crack the American independent film scene. Um uh, one of the things I didn't have on my side is um, is uh, is that I've I've learned how to make films by making genres. Well, I'm I'm sorry, by making dramas with no genre inflection. So I'm not making comedies. I'm not making thrillers. I'm not making romances. And dramas are tough, you know. And they don't get um, they take longer to get dis- discovered, and they're harder to sell and um, Oh, and en- ensemble dramas, no less. You know, that's made it very hard for me. I haven't made it easy on myself to begin a career in filmmaking. But I, I, I will say I feel it seems absurd to say, because technically, if you count like all the little teeny freebie fe- experimental features I made in between, I mean, technically, Henry Gamble's seventh feature, and then that's on top of... Three or four larger shorts, and then twenty-seven shorts made at Cinema Lab at Acting Studio. Um,
0: how do you get all that done? How do you make that happen? I mean, film tends to be a little bit of a not that you have to mobilize an army, but it's not like you're just painting in your studio. You know, you, right. you have to rely on a lot of people and a lot of things coming together. Especially if you're doing the things of the nature that you're doing. How, how do you? How the hell do you do that?
1: <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm just building relationships and saying, hey, do you want to do another one? And then, uh, you know, not n- needing more than, you know, a certain amount and asking people for it and making a case for it. and <laughs> I mean, It's the, probably the most boring Yeah, but thing. you
0: seem uh, just uncannily good at that. I think it's a difficult thing to be... And there's some, uh, I can't remember what the exact Orson Welles quote was, but he was lamenting the fact that so little of his time was spent actually making the films and so much of his time was spent just trying to get them off the ground. Right. And, um, you know, do you find that a lot of your energy is being, and, and maybe that's part of the deal, particularly of being an independent filmmaker, maybe that's the price that you pay, that you have to do all this other stuff um that doesn't feel like part of the creative process. Um, do you ever feel like some of the, some of that is taking too much of your time and energy? Um,
1: these days, I actually feel like the energy of um, maintaining everything afterwards is actually more exhausting than the prep at this point. At this point, juggling... Uh, investors and marketing and bank accounts and LLCs and far outweighs the energy it takes to raise the money <laughs> so I, it, lately I've been like I don't know how long I mean I, I'm gonna keep making the movies but I have to figure out a I mean I, I mean I should have hired a business manager and administrator three years ago but I can't pay anybody you know I can't pay anybody but I need I desperately need i'm going to need some help if i if just with all the business if i'm going to keep doing this
0: there's there's um there's a and again not to give anything away I'm going to be careful about it but Francis Guinan 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 yeah, yeah who's great in anything I've ever seen him in mm-hmm. he's terrific yeah at some point just in the midst of all the mayhem he has a great line something like man there sure are a lot of stories Mm. I thought I can't explain why but in your films in particular like I mentioned earlier the little scene in Wise Kids where you're just that, that one line and the way he delivers it in the middle of that movie just feels like the home movie to me I just love that moment and I thought I also thought to some degree that's you coming through just yeah. just sitting there in the middle of all those possibilities and
1: all those stories and no it's true i mean just like i'm surprised to be making coming of age movies i'm surprised to be making ensemble movies i mean n- neither of those are types of films that i was obsessed with um, but you just make what you make i guess
0: well man i appreciate you taking the time yeah absolutely enjoyed it yeah it was fun eat your donut As I said at the top of the show, the recent epidemic of celebrity deaths has everyone checking their own pulse, so it seemed like a good time for the Hog Butcher radio players to help us all bravely confront our own mortality. This is Funeral.
2: Nancy, we are so sorry. We're just so
3: sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, if you need anything, you just let us know, okay? We're here for you.
0: Thank you. Thank you, guys. It it means a lot to me that you're here, and I know it would mean a lot to David. I'm just
3: so... I mean, we don't even know what to say. Yeah. It's okay. (laughs) It's it's okay. I guess... You know, I, I mean, I guess it's good at least that he didn't suffer... Yeah. At least he went quickly, you know? That's something we can be grateful for. Well, yes. Actually, he did suffer for quite a while, but... (laughs) Oh. We are so sorry. Yes.
0: But, I just mean, at least it wasn't worse. At least he didn't suffer, you know, really, really badly.
3: Yeah, you know, at least it was moderate suffering.
0: Oh. Well, actually it got
3: pretty bad at the end there. Actually, but thank you. Thank you.
0: Okay. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is... At least it's not like he was like, oh my god, I'm in so much
3: pain, you know? He was more just like, jeez, I don't feel so well. Oh, sweetie. Sweetie, she did say that he suffered. Yeah, yes, he did. So it was probably more like, oh shit, this hurts. I am in pain.
2: Like, this is unpleasant. I know I'm
3: going to die, but it could definitely be worse. Or like, oh, gosh, this hurts, but at least I have all my limbs. Okay, stop. I know you're trying to be helpful, but please just, you know, stop. Or like, oh,
2: I feel like I'm slowly dying, but at least I still have total control of my bowel.
3: Yeah, you're like, ah, oh, it hurts but at least I haven't lost my mind. At least I'm not running around yelling, I'm a pilot! I'm a pilot! At
2: least I'm not just a bloody
3: stump! Okay, that's enough. Just stop it. He did suffer like that. He shed his pants. He lost his mind. He said he was a pilot. He was a bloody stump! Oh. I see. Well, if there's anything we can do, us know. Thank you. Sure. Do you know where the donuts are? They're by the bathroom.
0: Funeral was written by Marion O'Barrell of the sketch comedy group Brick. It was performed by the Hog Butcher radio players, who are also members of Brick, Megan Kelly, Sue Salvi, and Kane Collier. I want to thank my guest Stephen Cohn, and just a song before we go. This seems like a good one after funeral. It's the wondrously unique Robin Bienneman, who has a new record coming out very soon. This is off his record Songs About Work. Robin Bienneman and Hog Heaven. Until next time.
2: At the end of my life When it's time to leave There's only one place left For an old man like me
3: And
2: I'll arrive at the gate With a Buddha's smile I will lay down my weight And take a rest for a while It's time I'm leaving up to hog heaven, and I swear someday I'm going to find my way to hog When our day is done we're going to shed our skin I'll be happy and strong and you'll be pretty and thin those catfish are jumping clear up to the sky and the living is easy and the cotton is high to hug heaven, and someday I swear I'm going to meet you up there, yes. credit cards and your worries behind we'll know right where we are when those church bells chime we're gonna find our wings up above the stars And when those church bells ring we'll know just right where we are in Those bells start ringing. We're in heaven, and someday I'm sure I'm going to find the door to. Someday I swear I'm going to climb the stairs to.